0: Thank you. Thank you very much. It's really nice to be here with you today. And to be, we're going to be opening this series on Revelation, which I am childishly excited about today. Um, if you have a Bible, if you could turn to Revelation 1. Uh, Revelation is one of the richest and most glorious books in the Bible. If you're new to the church or new to Christianity, it will seem very strange. It is kind of strange, a strange book for us. And I want to talk a little bit about why that is. Because my guess is it's not just people who are new to Christianity, but sometimes, I mean, I met somebody in the meeting I've just come from who has been a Christian for about 60 years, and she says, yeah, I just don't understand it at all. Just really confusing. It's one of those, it's the book in the Bible, really, that most people find difficult to read. And so as a way of introducing not just this message, but the series as a whole, I wanted to talk a bit about that before we read from Revelation 1, a little bit to talk about why it's difficult to read this book, and how we can hopefully find a way through that. And many of the difficulties we have, if you've ever tried to read Revelation and been baffled by it, Many of the difficulties you have probably stem from the fact that the kind of writing it is is a kind of writing that we don't use anymore and no one has for about 1,800 years. So we are very unfamiliar with the kind of text that this is. It's called an apocalypse. Jewish people around the turn of the millennia were very into it. They wrote a number of apocalypses a couple of hundred years before this through to soon after it. This kind of document was very popular but since then, apart from people who were reading ancient ones like this, nobody's written them and no one reads them. So they're very hard for us to access because the kind of writing is completely unique. I'm trying to illustrate the point. The novel, right? We've all, Most of us read a novel at some point, and if we haven't, we know what they are. Novels are pretty much unique to the last 300 years. If you were to give a novel to somebody in 1300, give a novel to William Shakespeare or Geoffrey Chaucer or... Julius Caesar, they would not understand what it was. Because that's not how people wrote fictional stories. If you wanted to tell a fictional story in the medieval world, the ancient world, you would write a play or an epic poem. But you wouldn't write prose. So novels. if you gave a novel to Julius Caesar, he would assume it was a true account. You just wouldn't have a category for what you're telling him it is, which is a made-up story that's told as if it's a true story. That's just not something many cultures have done. And we're used to novels, so we find them very easy to read. But you could imagine giving that to someone who'd never seen one. They would not be able to figure it out. Right? More contemporary example. Have you ever taken someone who's got no exposure to British culture to the pantomime? Oh my goodness, I I feel as someone who's had a fair bit of exposure to British culture, 40 years worth, I go to the pantomime and I find it a cross-cultural experience. It is the most bizarre, isn't it? On the face of it, what on earth are they doing? Why is he just as her and why is she just as him? And Why are they all wearing lipstick? Who the heck's buttons? Why are we talking back to the characters? All this stuff. If you were to take, say, uh, if I took a Russian friend who's never been to the UK to a pantomime, I don't think they would have any way of accessing what on earth was going on. And that, in a way, is what happens to us when we read Revelation. We are approaching a kind of text that simply does not exist in our culture, and that makes it really hard to read. So, for instance, it's full of symbols, the meanings of which have to be figured out to make any sense of what's going on, and you have to be very careful not to read those symbols as if they are referring to literal realities, because they're not intended to be read that way at all. And that makes some of us a little nervous, because we think, we want to read things literally, but actually, you're supposed to read texts in the way the text's meant to be read. And if the text is meant to be read with lots of symbolic language, you have to make sure you do read them as a symbol, rather than as a literal thing, or else, as you'll see later in the book, when you find a flying locust scorpion in sort of running around the earth stinging people, if you don't know what that's a symbol for, you will... Probably wake up sweating in the night thinking, Are they coming today? Is it now? It's just a very, you've got to be quite careful not to read it as if it's a kind of writing you are familiar with. And we are familiar with novels or journalism or whatever. But you've got to read it like an apocalypse. You've got to read it like the kind of writing that it is. And if you don't know that, you turn it into, if you're not careful, a complicated timeline of the future that tells you all of the baddies and villains and all of the terrible things that will happen at the end. And you should be very wary of going to a supermarket and using a barcode because that might be the mark of the beast. And you know what? If you come across these ideas, and actually, some of us, we have. We've read books on the Left Behind series, maybe, or we've watched Christian television from America, and it's thrown us or scared us sometimes because we start thinking, hang on a second, if this is all going to happen, then what does that mean for me? And I'm like, "Ah, I don't know quite how to understand. So we've got to be careful to read it as the kind of writing that it is. And by the way, so far, I'm only talking about the Confucian Christians have. If you're not a Christian, it's even worse, because you're not only dealing with a new kind of writing, you're also dealing with a new kind of writing that draws all of its imagery from the scriptures, which you may not know very well either. So you're finding yourself going, not only do I not realize it's symbolic, but even if I did, I wouldn't understand what the symbols were about. So I don't realize when I see the word locust or frog in Revelation, If I don't know the Exodus story, I might not know what those symbols meant. So I'm doubly confused when I read it. And that confusion is so great that it recently got one of our church members on the front page of the National Papers. I don't know if you knew that, but there's a guy in our... He was in the Catford site. He's now in the Beckenham site called Nathan Stevens. He's a lawyer, for an immigration lawyer. And a person had claimed... You might have read the story. It was on the front page of a lot of the daily papers. And somebody had applied for uh, immigration asylum here because he said, I converted from Islam to Christianity because I found it to be a religion of peace. And someone at the home office wrote back and said, Christianity is not a religion of peace, and started quoting texts from Revelation in his letter. And this guy was like, you, what? Well, you can't do that. And he got in touch with, as it happens, our friend Nathan, and Nathan represented him, and it became a national story. And you may have read about it just a few weeks back. And in some ways, that just shows how hard Revelation is to read for people who don't... This poor person at the home office, I imagine, is, you know probably got a little bit of a more difficult day job now because they've obviously become a national story. But actually, they just they didn't know how to read the book. And many of us don't. And so we've got to be careful to read it as the kind of thing that it is. And we have actually got to make sure that we don't do what many of us are tempted to do at this point, which is to say, I'm not going to read it. Too weird. right? And that's what a lot of Christians do. Freaks me out. Don't understand it. And off they go. And that, I'm afraid, is the worst thing you can do because you guarantee in doing that that the only people talking about Revelation are weird people. Right? You let the monkeys take over the zoo. You say the only people commenting on this book are... And if, I'm afraid if you Google image Revelation or overview Revelation, you'll find some very, very strange stuff. And we've just got to be careful we don't abandon this book because many of us have found it hard. If you do that, you play right into the devil's hands, if I may say this. I, A Bible teacher who I I really respect said, you know, the devil has managed to stop Christians reading the two bits of the Bible in which the devil is most clearly under the feet of Jesus. He's managed to stop people reading the beginning of Genesis because they're worried about origins, and he's managed to stop people reading Revelation because they're worried about getting confused. So as a result, they don't read either of them and live their whole lives without seeing how subjugated to King Jesus the devil actually is. It's an interesting challenge. There is no book in the Bible that teaches the victorious nature of the Christian life more than Revelation. And as we'll see in a moment, it's the only book in the New Testament that promises a blessing on everybody who reads it and everybody who hears it. So to that end, I wonder if you, as we read it, could you stand? We don't normally do this, and we probably won't normally do it, but I just thought it might be good at the start of this series. Just stand and hear Revelation chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what's written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash round his chest. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I'm the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Right therefore the things that you've seen. Those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand. And the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands the seven churches. This is the word of God. Okay, Have a seat. The first four verses of this chapter are really important for us in understanding how the whole book is going to work. If we get clear up front on what Revelation is and how to read it, then we aren't going to get flustered when we find flying locusts, scorpions, and beasts later. Okay, And the way that John describes what the book is, he uses four categories for it, four ways of describing what the book is. Three of them actually words he uses, the the fourth one is implied but it's very obvious actually. But the first word he uses in the very opening verses, revelation, is an apocalypse. And that's the word apocalypse is just the Greek word for revelation or unveiling or unmasking or disclosing something. Okay, so it refers to, if you like, what happens when you remove peel back a curtain and have a look and see what's going on backstage. You imagine you go and see a, a play, and then at the end, you go around backstage and see what's happening behind the curtain, you'd get a very different perspective on the events. And Revelation is doing that. Revelation is pulling back the curtain so you can see the spiritual realities behind the world that you see. If you don't do that, the world just looks like a series of material cause and effect. And Revelation says, no, it's not that. There are people, there are actors, empires, kings, armies, all the rest, politicians, who knows? But behind them, there are spiritual powers at work that are trying to shape what's going on that you can see. And you sometimes need to have your eyes open to see the realities behind the world you can see. You need the curtain to be pulled back so you can see what's backstage. It is a book of unveiling, of curtain removing. It's a book of unmasking. We've seen Scooby-Doo. There's another... Cultural experience that would make no sense to people unfamiliar with, I guess, British or American culture. But you watch Scooby-Doo, and there's always that guy who you suspect is probably the monster, but he's pretending to be a monster and frightening the kids. He's always a caretaker or something. And then at the very end, the the monster with the face, they pull the mask off, and everybody goes, it's you. And everyone goes, that kind of noise that Scooby-Doo makes. And it's like the unveiling. So you go, hang on a second, I thought you were this, but actually you're that, and I've now seen you for who you truly are. Revelation is doing that. Revelation is saying, you think you're just dealing with whoever, the Emperor Nero, or whatever. I want you to see the spiritual power at work behind him so you can recognize what you're dealing with. Friends, Revelation is an x-ray, not a crystal ball. Right? It is a way of seeing through the visible to the invisible reality behind it, rather than a way of gazing and wondering about the future. It does predict some future events, but that's not the main reason this book is there. Eugene Peterson pictures Revelation like a stew pot on a stove. He imagines coming into a kitchen where the whole house is filled with the smell of... And you can't always be sure what it is. But you know, there's some onion and some garlic and some meat. And oh, What is it exactly? And I wonder what's in the stew. And then somebody lifts the lid of the stew pot and everybody peers in and goes, Oh, that's what it is. And Eugene Peterson says, the lifting of the lid is an apocalypse. You lift the thing and you go, Oh, now I see what's caused all of this. That's what Revelation is for John. So as we read it, we should expect it to expose the spiritual dynamics at work behind the world that we can see. So Revelation's an apocalypse. I said there are four key things he says. It's an apocalypse. Secondly, it's a witness or it's a testimony. Those words are really used to mean the same thing in, in this book and in Scripture generally. And we probably if you've got a Christian background, you are used to hearing the word testimony mean something slightly different. If you've heard the word testimony in Christian circles, it's often used, at least today, to mean the story of how I became a Christian, which is fine. i do not not disparaging that, but that isn't the way John uses the word. It's not the way it's usually used in the Bible. The word in the Bible normally means something a little bit more public and dangerous than that. The, way the word testimony or witness is the word in Greek and from which we get our word martyr. And in this book, it refers to people who are literally saying, I am testifying to the victory of Jesus and my allegiance to him, even if people kill me for it. That's what it means. So this is a testimony in the sense that they are prepared to die for testifying to, witnessing to, the victory of Jesus Christ and their allegiance to him rather than to any other worldly power. It's an apocalypse. It's a witness. Thirdly, it's a prophecy. Verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Revelation is a word from God, not a work of human imagination. It's a word from God that brings blessing and judgment and hope. And it's a word from God that's intended to cut through the things that we might believe and say, no, 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 that's what it looks like, but thus says the Lord. That's what Revelation is. It's a prophecy, it's a word from the throne, not a work of human imagination. And specifically, in this case, the prophecy is structured around four visions, actually, four things John sees. If you want to go, how does does the whole book work of Revelation? Very briefly, it's got four visions, which are going to appear now, right? And John says, four times, John says, I was in the Spirit, and I saw, right? I was in the Spirit, and I saw Jesus, chapters 1 to 3. I was in the Spirit, and I saw the throne of God. That's the bulk of the book, where we're going to spend most of our time in this series. But then towards the end, I was in the Spirit, and I saw the harlot. Don't worry, we will come to her later. And then I was in the spirit and I saw the bride. And those four visions really are the overview of the whole thing, but they're all prophetic visions. They're they're revelations to John. They are a word from God, not something he's made up. So revelation is an apocalypse, a witness, a prophecy, and finally it's a letter, which To be fair, John doesn't actually use the word letter, but it's very obvious that's what he's doing. Because if you've read any other letters from this period, they all start like this. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace. Revelation's a letter. It's written to real Christians in real cities or towns in what we now call Turkey and West Asia. And they they genuinely lived. At some point in the later half of the first century, these people are genuinely living and often struggling and often facing persecution for their faith, and Revelation's written to them. Ultimately, although it's written for me, it's not written to me or you. And that's actually important to bear in mind because it means that if you read Revelation and forget it's a letter, you will start thinking that the things you would assume, these powers and symbols referred to, were the same things that John was talking about. And they usually aren't. What I mean by that is, if you were to read Revelation and conclude that what it was talking about was somebody who people in the first century would never have heard of, you're reading it wrong. Right? So, but that's often what Christians do. So we read it and go, this sounds very like a descri- I've read books like this, right? This sounds like a description of the European Union. Like, no, no. <laughs> it can't be the European Union, not just for... Reasons I could get into but won't because I'll get in trouble. But it also can't be the European Union because no one in first century Turkey would have possibly known that's what they meant. Never heard of the European Union. Never heard of Europe, probably. So that's not what we're talking about. If you read Revelation and conclude that the, the beast is the Pope, right? so this guy, that's not who it is because there's no way that the original readers could possibly have known that. And this is a letter written to real people. Right, Who had to know. John is talking to them and we're reading their mail. Praise God, it's inspired by God. We can learn a lot from it. But it wasn't, I'm not the original audience. So that's not who the beast is. The beast is not Mao tse doesn't matter how many Christians you killed. If you were a 20th century dictator, you cannot be the main, re- now there might be principles we can apply, but you cannot be the main reason why John is talking. It can't be, sorry, Donald Trump. Donald Trump is not the beast. It can't even be Steve Tibbetts. I'm afraid to say. There is no way. None of those people are the beast because none of those people are the people that a first century person would think of if they read this and they lived in West Asia. And that principle, I'm being a little bit silly about that one, but when we look at the book as a whole, it is really important to bear that in mind because there's plenty of, some of us probably in this room may have study Bibles that give all kinds of weird and wonderful things that, to be honest, no one in the first century could possibly have guessed were true. And there's a good hint that those things are wrong just by the fact that it's a letter written to real people. So when we bear those four things in mind, revelations and apocalypse, a witness, a prophecy, and a letter, it will help us. Because we will expect it to address first century persecuted Christians by unmasking the spiritual realities at work behind their world, and then having done that, we can say, wow, very similar spiritual realities are at work now and in every generation. And we should definitely do that. We've just got to bear in mind that that's, we're not the original audience in that sense. And as I just mentioned, it's made up of four visions, the first one of which is a vision of Jesus. Praise God, this is where it starts. I think if it started with a vision of the harlot, I would be very frightened. But this is where it begins. The first vision, chapter, uh, chapter 1 and verse 12 then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash round his chest. And in a moment, John tells us, towards the end of the chapter, of the seven lampstands are the seven churches. I find it interesting that the first thing John sees when he expects to see Jesus, he actually sees the churches. Most people do. Most people see the church before they see Jesus. They go to perhaps to meet Jesus, to find him. And what they find are churches. And then they find in the midst of them one like a son of man. That may have been your experience when you first encountered Jesus. It may have been your experience if you're new to Christianity right now and you're thinking, wow, this is an odd book of the Bible to have appeared in. Um, But I'm new to this church. But what you will probably find is if you came here thinking, wow, I'm going to see Jesus, the first thing you see is a church or a group of churches. And only after you've seen them do you, in the midst of them, see the one like a son of man. I find that encouraging that that was John's experience as well. That's actually not a bad thing for people to come to Jesus through seeing the church first. And, of course, the number seven, as you in fact, may not know, but the number seven represents fullness in the book of Revelation and often in the Bible. Uh, John sees the church before the Savior, and most people do. But in the midst of the sevenfold church is the sevenfold Savior. Right? We hear him described in seven ways. We get seven features of his body described, if you like. Hair, eyes, feet, voice, hand, mouth, face. One after another. John goes, D-d-d-d. and you'll. By the way, there are a lot of sevens in this book. So if you've got a fear of the number seven, this will be a struggle for you for the next few weeks. But he's going to see the seven different features of Jesus Effectively, John's eyes pan from his head down to his feet and then back up again to his face. And he's going to tell you what those seven are, and each one of them is filled with biblical symbolism to try and communicate the splendor of the risen Lord Jesus. Verse 14, he says, The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. Now, white in Revelation is a very significant color. White is a color in Revelation, which means the coming together of all of the colors into one. It's a, color, it's a color of fullness. It's the color of, in that. In, actually in Revelation's terms, purity. And that's what, so you find a white stone, a white horse, a white throne, a white, white here. You've got loads and loads of different uses of the word white in Revelation to mean what happens when all of the colors come together and are fully and purely fulfilled in one person. And that person, of course, is the Lord Jesus here. And in Daniel, which is, this is drawn from the, the book of Daniel, if you know, You might know the book of Daniel anyway, but you might know the song Blessing and Honor, we often sing here, uh, which quotes from that of that there is an ancient of days who's got hair white like wool, like snow, and the ancient of days meets the Son of Man. And what is amazing about what John is doing here is he's saying, in my vision I saw, not the ancient of days with hair white like wool meeting the Son of Man, but the Son of Man actually had hair that was white like wool. The Son of Man and the ancient of days are somehow the same person. That is Jesus. In a sense, there is Jesus the human and Jesus the everlasting one who has always been are the same person. And John is witnessing to that as he just describes his hair. Verse 14, his eyes were like a flame of fire. Fire in the Bible often means holiness. It often refers to the burning, purifying, refining power of the holiness of God that's too bright to look at that makes you want to cower sometimes, but Jesus has fiery eyes of burning splendor. He's not as sweet as we sometimes think he is. Sweet in the sense of, you know, rich and glorious, but not sweet in the sense of, oh, bless. Not cute, Jesus. You look into Jesus' eyes, you don't go, oh, how gorgeous, right? You look into Jesus' eyes, and you think, whoa, what am I looking at? I there is fire coming out. There's a holiness here that burns away impurity even as I'm looking at him. Verse 15 His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. So the feet of Jesus are glowing as if they're in the fire. Have you ever, some of us might have seen it in person, but most of us probably only on TV, but where you see metal being smelted, where you see the metal looks like it's almost on fire. You know, it's sort of so bright orange, it's almost yellow. And you look at that, his feet are like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And I, that makes me wonder, are the feet of Jesus refined by fire because the church, the people of God, the hands and feet of Jesus, are also going to be refined by fire as well? Is that why? I don't know if that's why. It's hard to prove this kind of symbol. But I wonder if there is a connection between the feet of Jesus in this vision and the feet of Jesus, his people, as they face opposition and suffering and as they do are refined and become, they glow in the dark with glory as they are refined and tested in fire. Whenever you hear that the church is the hands and feet of Jesus, it's good to remember what happened to Jesus' hands and feet. Later in verse 15, his voice was like the roar of, of many waters. Now, this is what I've, I would like to go to Niagara or to the Victoria Falls one day. I haven't yet. My guess from seeing footage of them is that when you're standing in front of them, marveling at the wall of sound is at least as powerful as marveling at the sights. That the noise, the din, the overwhelming, cascading, thunderous racket that these things are making is itself captivating even if you couldn't see anything. Just to see the thunderous splendor of these giant rushing waters and then you hear that's what jesus's voice sounds like and jesus speaks and jesus says whatever he says i am or fear not or even hi it's spoken with the voice like thunderous rushing waters it's awe-inspiring it makes you stop in your track you don't try and talk over it you don't go to victoria falls i suspect and just carry on chatting you round the corner, you see it, and you hear the noise running towards you like a wall. And you say, I'm just going to be quiet for a moment and listen to this extraordinary noise. And that is what the voice of Jesus does. That's why, actually why I asked you to stand a few minutes ago when we hear Jesus speaking. Because it's good for us just to reflect you know, all that comes from the voice of Jesus. Verse 16, in his right hand, he held seven stars. Now the stars we find out in a moment are the messengers of the seven churches, which we'll meet next week. And then in verse 16, also, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. That combination of the messengers in his hands and the sword in his mouth is really odd. Because it is the opposite of the way that all worldly empires function. What worldly empires do is they have a sword in their hand and a message in their mouth. What Jesus, the the true emperor of the world, has is messengers in his hands and a sword in his mouth. He doesn't come, in that sense, with a massive weapon to strike everybody down. He comes with a word, and that word is the only weapon he needs. And it's the only weapon you need as well. That's why the church doesn't take up arms to fight against worldly empires when they are persecuting and killing the church, as in this context they were, as we'll see later in the book. The church doesn't rise up and say, we must raise an army. We must be bigger and stronger than them. The church instead says, no, The only weapon we have, even if they kill us for it, we will speak with the word, the sword of the word of God that is powerful enough to cut between anything, to separate joint and marrow, anything, soul and spirit even. I, by speaking the word of God, have a weapon to which the world has no answer. And Jesus' sword, the word of God, is the only weapon he needs. He has a sword in his mouth and he has a messenger or messengers in his hands. It's the only weapon you need. It can cut through anything. And verse 16, finally, and his face, this is the seventh of seven, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When there's an eclipse, there's always some poor person from the health and safety part of the government somewhere who has to make sure that everybody in the country knows that if you are going to look at the sun when it's behind the moon, you must make sure you, do, you wear these special glasses and stuff because otherwise you might find yourself looking at the sun when the sun comes out from behind the moon or the moon moves from in front of the sun, or whatever it is, you've got to make sure you do not look at the sun shining in full strength, because you'll go blind. you have the thing imprinted in the back of your retina for days, if not always. You cannot look at the sun shining in full strength. None of us can. And the point John is making is, I knew this guy. I walked with him. I rested my head on his chest while we had the last supper together, and I could not look at him because it was too glorious for me. That's what his face is like. Blinding glory, totally overwhelming. Now, faced with a glorious vision like that, what would you do? What would you do next? Now, if you encountered the Son of Man with a voice like Niagara and his feet and his eyes on fire and his face shining like the sun, what would you do or say next? You sing a song? Give him a high five? Would you ask him questions? Would you tell him about all the things you think he's got wrong? I suspect if you or I had this vision on our way home, we would respond exactly the same way John did, which is that we would fall on our feet as if we were dead. My uh, wife's grandmother was a formidable lady who I just know as Nanny James, right? She was in her 70s when I knew her before she died. She was pretty fearsome. Um, she was the only woman I ever knew who made our pastor, who was a pretty rough stick himself, go and hide when she walked purposefully down the corridor because he was worried what she was going to tell him off for now. She was a pretty fiery lady, right? She was also a very godly woman who I'm now living in the benefits of the fourth generation of the faith in her family. So I'm feeling good about Nanny James as well. I want to say that and honor her, but she was a pretty, pretty fiery lady. And I remember her saying one of the more extraordinary things I've heard a Christian say in my life. She said, and I'm trying to quote this as directly as I can, she said, when I meet Jesus, I shall be very interested to find out if I was right about the person who was vetoing the East Grinstead bypass. And there was a pause, and then she said, I don't know his name, but I do know where he lives. (laughs) Which is almost worse, isn't it? Now, I didn't have my wits about me, and I'm not sure I would have challenged this formidable older lady when I was in my early 20s. But if I had, I would have said something like, Nanny, his feet are on fire. His feet are on fire. You are not going to talk to him about the East Grinstead bypass. You're not going to talk to him about the problem of evil or any other problem you've had. You're not going to tell him why you think he made a bad call when he allowed that to happen to you or when he said this in the Bible. You're not going to think any of those things. You're going to fall on your feet as if you were dead. And so am I. And when we do, the glory of Jesus is that he doesn't leave us there, but that he stretches out his right hand. We've just met his right hand. It was holding the stars. And then he stretches out his right hand to John, and he says, fear not. That's the first thing this Jesus says in this vision. Fear not. Don't be afraid. You don't have anything to be scared of. I am the living one. I am the first and the last I'm the bookends around everything that has ever happened. I died, but behold, I'm alive forever. And that means I've got the keys of death and Hades, death and the grave in my pocket. That means that if I unlock the gates of death, nobody can make you stay there. So you don't have anything to be scared of. Because I've got authority to pronounce anybody I like to be alive forever with me, because I've got the keys, and I won them by dying and rising again. So you don't have anything to be scared of because the only weapon anyone could throw against you, ultimately, is to kill you, and I've got the keys. So I am alive forever, and you have nothing to fear. No matter what kind of trials you are facing, church, and if we're honest, the the trials being faced by these Christians were mostly much more intensive than the trials most of us are facing, mostly in our daily lives. But no matter what kind of trials they are, trials in my life seem very big to me. doesn't particularly make me feel better to go, other people have it worse. I think, well, that's not me. I still find this really hard. But no matter what those trials are and how intense they are for you, you have nothing to be afraid of. If you fear Jesus, you don't need to fear anything or anyone else. And that, in some ways, is the message of Revelation. It's the message of Revelation chapter 1 that Jesus' first words to us are, Fear not, I right? Fear not. It's not. I'm not surprised you're carrying on the floor, but you don't need to be afraid ever. If you end up reading this book and concluding that you should be more scared about the future, because what about the beasts and the barcodes and the flying locust scorpions and goodness knows what else. If you read this book and it makes you more scared, you know you're doing it wrong because the opening words of Jesus are, don't be afraid. Fear not. I'm the first and the last. It's all right. I've got it. I know it's scary sometimes, but I've got it. Jesus has died. He is alive forever, and he holds the keys of the grave. So you can take courage, not in your abilities or your circumstances, but in a Savior with a waterfall voice and flaming feet. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the glorious Lord Jesus. We want to see him. We want to see him vividly like John did. We want to see him in our mind's eye. We want to experience him in power by his spirit. We want to see him in the word. We want to hear that voice again and again. And we want our lives to be both shaped by a wonder at how glorious he is and by a fearlessness that comes from knowing he has conquered the grave and is the first and the last. And I pray you'd allow us, enable us, empower us to live lives like that this week, this month, this year. To live lives that are fearless because we have seen Jesus and reckoned with how, in a way, terrifying he is. And yet come through it to celebrate and worship the one who has conquered death and holds the keys. We are so grateful for him and we love him. Amen.